outside of ourselves. And we just pray that we would grow. And so, so Father, I pray that the things that we look at this morning in your word and talk about uh, the importance of it, Lord, we pray that you would write it upon our hearts and that you would meet with us here, Lord. Speak to us. And we just thank you so much that we can do this. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So uh, we, we've been following Jesus as we've been looking at his life uh, across the span of the Gospels for these um, past weeks and now rolling into months. And, um, and, and as we've seen kind of chronologically, we've seen Jesus baptized, which was the very beginning of his public ministry. And then he went right from there into a 40-day period of temptation where he uh, fought back the forces of darkness and also taught us how to do the same. Uh, and then from there, he traveled up from the, the Judean southern region up into Cana just for a wedding um, where, where he turned water into wine and just manifested his glory for the first time, the first public miracle that Jesus did. Uh, just spending a couple of days up in that area, and then um, he went down all the way back 70 miles to Jerusalem uh, for the first Passover of his public ministry. And that was the time where he turned over the tables for the first time <laughs> and really attached a face to the reputation that was beginning to spread abroad. And then uh, meeting with Nicodemus, that famous passage where Jesus said to him that you must be born again, and that coming right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then uh, spending just a few days there, and then moving back north into the region now of Samaria. Not going around, as would be typical, but going through the, the region of Samaria because of a meeting that he would have with a woman um, there, and then subsequently with a village of Samaritans that he would bring salvation to. And so uh, we looked at that in our last couple of sessions together. And then from there now, Jesus leaving Samaria goes up north, and he comes to Nazareth. And Nazareth would, if you're moving north from Samaria, be the closest uh, city to where he was. And so just moving towards the Galilee, he comes into Nazareth, which was the place where Jesus was brought up. And there's a passage of scripture that, um, that you can read. We're not going to read it and look at it, but of what took place in Nazareth when he went there. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And it's Luke's... Um, passage of right after the temptation. So when you read the temptation of Christ in Luke, immediately after the temptation, Luke jumps to this scene in Nazareth. Uh, and it's where Jesus is basically officially rejected by, um, by his own people, basically, where he brought up, where he's brought up. He reads a passage of scripture to them. He makes a claim that he is the Messiah. Uh, this day the scriptures have filled your sight and, and they get angry at him. For it. They say, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's son. Um, and, and then Jesus makes a, a comment about Gentile salvation, and they, they want to kill him uh, immediately. You know, but he, he passes through their midst. So that's Nazareth. Then he leaves Nazareth, and then he comes into Cana. And Cana is the closest next town to Nazareth. So he's just traveling towards the Galilee. And so he comes into Cana, which is where he turned the water into wine. And John records what happens there. It's John chapter 4 verses 46 through 54. And it's uh, the second miracle then that Jesus did in the Galilee region. He heals a nobleman's son uh, in, in that town of, of Cana. And John says it, that this is the second miracle that Jesus did now in Cana. So it kind of dates it for us and lets us know 
uh, where we're at in the chronology. And so then he leaves Cana, he's just passing through, and he comes into now Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the shore of the Galilee. And that's really going to be where kind of the headquarters of Jesus' northern public ministry will be. Jesus does things in Galilee, and then he does things in Jerusalem as you go through the Gospels, those two different regions. And his headquarters of his ministry for the Galilean segment of it is in Capernaum. And so he comes into Capernaum now for the first time uh, in it, and it begins kind of the, 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 the Galilean segment of his ministry. And the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning is at the beginning of that. It's in Matthew chapter 4. And it's in verse 12 um, that we begin reading. It says that now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison. Now, that, that's kind of a time <clears throat> mark that you'll see throughout the Gospels. When you read about John being in prison and John not being in prison, that's kind of a way that we determine when certain things happen. Because John says a couple times, you know, this is before John went to prison. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, after John went to prison, they say certain things. And so the reason this is here is basically just so we can get a time frame on things. So John, at this point now, sometime between when Jesus left Jerusalem, which is not long ago, just a, a few days or a few weeks before this, but in that span between when Jesus left Jerusalem and now, John has been arrested. And, and that, that arresting is going to end in martyrdom, you know, for John the Baptist. But it says that John, Jesus heard that John was cast into prison. He departs into Galilee. And so leaving Nazareth, which is that passage in Luke 4, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, and by the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, that would be the, the Sea of Galilee, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is springing up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. And so now the beginning of Jesus' preaching uh, ministry and it says, and he began to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we're told that Jesus comes in, and Matthew always uh, tells us that he is fulfilling scripture. Matthew, more than any of the gospel writers, says that it might be fulfilled what is written. And so he points to Isaiah's prophecy, and he brings Jesus into the region, and, then, and now Jesus, the beginning of his, his preaching, uh, his first word that comes out of his mouth um, it, by way of preaching is the word repent. That's the word that comes out first. Above all, uh, you know, before all others, he calls uh, men to repentance. Now, the word repent is a very unpopular word in, in the world that we live in today, and especially in the United States of America. And the reason why that word is so unpopular is because the word itself implies that the person um, who would be doing the repenting is doing something wrong, or they're living in a way that's wrong, or they're thinking in a way that's wrong. And people don't like to hear 
that they're doing something wrong and they don't like to think that they're doing something wrong. So that word automatically uh, rubs people the wrong way when they hear that word. Um, and, and that, that uh, unpopular sentiment that's behind that word has gone past the borders of just the world's thinking. And it's, it's kind of trickled into the church's thinking as well. The concept of repentance has become very unpopular even in churches uh, today. People are trying to do with it or do away with it altogether and trying to have a Christianity that's void of repentance. So trying to walk with Jesus and to, to embrace all of the benefits of walking with Jesus and the glories of the gospel, but to do that in, in a way that, that uh, circumvents um, this, this area, this concept of repentance. And the problem with that is that you can't do that. <laughs> so the problem is very simple. It's just that you can't. You, you cannot have a Christianity uh, that's void of repentance, and very simply you can't do it, is because Jesus uh, said that you can't do that. <laughs> is that repentance is uh, paramount and uh, foremost in, in anything else that we would have to do with them. And, and there's a couple of reasons why you can't. Why you can't have a Christian uh, experience or relationship with God void of repentance. And the first reason is that it deals, repentance deals at the very core of why Jesus came in the first place. If you notice in the text what Matthew chooses to use as his Old Testament uh, verse to, to, to kind of set the stage for what Jesus would say, notice what it says in verse 15 again of Matthew chapter 4. It says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death. So they're sitting in death and they're living in death. They're sitting in it and they're living in it. The, the sitting, the sad is sitting, the region would be where you live. And so they're sitting and living in death and it's in that place that light now springs up. They sat in darkness and death, but light has now come into to them. And what that does is that it sets a distinction between what people were and what Jesus came to bring them into or make them into. And so what you have here is you have two completely different segments. And whereas at one time there was only one option and one segment that all were in, now there's another segment and a whole other thing that is in stark contrast and is completely opposite to what was the death and darkness that now there is a, a second choice, and that is light and life. And you cannot be in both of those places. You, you cannot be in death and also in life at the same time. And you cannot be in darkness and also in light at the same time. There has to be a change that takes place in order for you to go from one side of that into the other side of it. And because of the sin condition that's upon all men, every one of us, every person that's born into this world that is a descendant of Adam and Eve, is born into this position and condition of darkness and death. And as different as darkness and light are, and death and life are, also now, uh, also is the, the, the two different um, ways that are, are before us. Now, the fact that Jesus says repent as his first word 
And it's in connection with this comparison of darkness and light and death and life. What that does is that it connects that contrast to the concept. The repentance goes with the contrast. You follow with me here? In other words, without a change of mind concerning life and issues, you cannot be saved. Now understand what repent means. The word repent, by definition, is to think differently, or to have an afterthought, or to reconsider. The word repent, or the concept of repentance, is something that happens in the mind. That's where repentance happens. It has to do with our thinking. And if you look up the word, there is, there, that is always the case. There, there's no action necessarily attached to repentance. It's something that happens in the mind. It's to think differently. In other words, it, when, when you think of it in the, in the terms of reconsidering, it is that you, you have spent your whole life thinking of things a certain way. <clears throat> You've seen things a certain way. You've had a viewpoint of things a certain way. You've operated according to a certain operating system your whole life. But to repent means that now what you do is that you take a few steps back and you consider the way that you've been thinking and the way that you've been living and what it is that you've been doing. And you look at that against what now is a second alternative. And as you reconsider what that is, your mind changes from being in allegiance to what you once did and what you once were, and you're now transitioning that allegiance to something that is completely different from what you used to do. That's what it means to repent. It means that my opinions and my position about the way I have lived has changed. And I no longer agree with that way because I see it for what it is, death, darkness, and a destination that's separated from God. And I now am agreeing with something that I formerly was opposed to, and that is the way that God has set forth uh, for life and light. And so it's a reconsideration, and so without a change of mind concerning life and its issues, you cannot uh, be saved. Now, Jesus would spell out that difference between darkness and light in a much more practical way a little bit later on. He would say that there are two roads. He would say that there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in that way and end up in that place. But he would say also that there's a narrow road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And he made a clear distinction. He didn't say that there was one road that had a narrow lane, you know, a broadside and a narrow way, and some people can find their way into that lane that will make it through. But he said that these are two completely different roads. And they, they have two different, totally different terrains. One is wide and one is narrow. And they have two completely different destinations. One ends up in death and darkness, and one ends up in life altogether. And so to repent is to recognize that I'm on the wide road that leads to de death and darkness, and that I'm experiencing the terrain that comes with that. And that now I want to be on a different road, the narrow road that leads to life uh, and that has a completely different terrain, and that in and of itself um, it is, is, is very uh, narrow. And so the first step in that is that I change my mind about the path that I want to be on, and that's what it means to uh, repent. 
And, and so the first reason why you can't have a Christianity apart from repentance is because there's two different roads and they both don't go and end up in the same place. And without leaving the road I'm on that leads to destruction and getting on the narrow path, a different path, then I cannot be saved because I'm automatically on that, that, that wide road that leads to destruction. So there must be a repentance, a change of mind, before there can be a change of location and a change of destination. The second reason why you can't have a Christianity void of repentance uh, is that um, the fact that we're all called to repent, okay, by Jesus, here in our text, first word of Jesus out of his mouth, it removes all possibility that the two roads could ever possibly merge. It, it can't happen. If, if the two roads, the road that I'm on from birth, and the road that he calls us onto, this narrow road leads us, if there's any possibility that those two roads could ever be one and the same, and it meaning I don't have to change my life, my life can stay exactly like it is, and, and I'm bringing Jesus into my life, you know, if that's possible, then Jesus wouldn't have said repent. He would have said accept. He would have said accept. A-C-C-E-P-T. Accept. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message would be very simply is that well, what you need to do in order to be saved is that you just need to accept my forgiveness and my salvation. And, and, and if you just add that now to whatever else it is that you're doing, that's the missing ingredient in all of your life. Just accept me. And if you just accept me, you'll be saved and forgiven of all your sins. But you can just continue on this path. That's not what the gospel is. See, if that was what Jesus called us to do, then the truth of the matter would be that the road that we're on isn't narrowing, it's actually broadening. Because the, the, the road is already broad that we're on, and what he's saying is just add another lane to it. Just make it a little wider. You know, open your mind, in a sense. And, and, and be, be free to be open to all ideas and just accept my idea in the bucket of all the other ideas. But that's so contrary to everything that we've been called into and what we believe. See, and so if Jesus is saying repent, which means change, then that means it's a forsaking of everything that the broad path represents. And then an embracing of just the narrow path that he is putting forth before us. And so the acceptance part of the gospel, which we're all called to accept Christ, we say that we've accepted Christ, is that we're accepting the terms that we're leaving what once was our lives and our way and our viewpoint and our ideology. And we are leaving that behind in order to embrace who he is and the life that he is giving to us and calling us into. And that's uh, what it means. Now, everything about the life that we live in Jesus Christ and the things that we believe as Christians, they are exactly opposite to what the world believes and the world feels. The, the opinion of the world uh, concerning the origin of the world, where, where the world came from. Now, if you're on the broad path and you consider what is the opinion that, that the world has towards the origins of man. And then you consider what Jesus tells us and what the Bible teaches is the origin of man. There's no common ground there. There's none. It is completely different. The two, those two things never merge. When you consider the purpose of life, that is why it is that we are alive and what it is that we were made for. And you're standing on the broad path, the world's path, and you ask a hundred people that question. And they'll tell you their opinion of what the purpose of life is. 
Then you go and you ask Jesus, or you take a look at the Bible, and you see the difference between what Jesus teaches, what God tells us is the purpose of life, and what the world says is the purpose of life. The world says the purpose of life is he who has the most toys, dies with the most toys, wins. That's the opinion of the world. The opinion of the world is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I'm going to extract every bit of pleasure and experience I can out of the time that I have on this earth because you only live once. That's the opinion of the world concerning the purpose of life. But then you ask Jesus and you say, what's the purpose of life? And he would say, the purpose of life is to die to this world and to die to yourself and to put others first and to love God with all your heart, mind, and strength and take up your cross daily, follow me, and die. And live your life for the next. Now there's no greater contrast when you look at the purpose of life between what Jesus says life is about and what the world says it's about. The origin and the purpose for man. What are we and why are we? Not just the world, but us, you and I. What does the world say versus what does God say? The how and why of human relationships. You look at what the broad path, the world says about those things. And then you consider what God says about marriage and relationships. The way that issues are defined and handled on the broad path versus on the narrow path. Concepts concerning marriage, the issues of marriage, issues of money, issues of family, issues of sex, issues of trials, issues with work and work ethic. You can take anything in life, anything at all, and you just consider for a minute what the world would give you in terms of their opinion of the how and why of those things. And then on the other side, you look at what God and the Bible says about each of those things. And there's no place where those two roads ever intersect. They are completely opposite, like oil and water. The motivation for what we do, look at those that are on the broad path that leads to destruction, and ask them, what's the motive? Why do you do what you do? And then you ask a Christian, or you ask Christ, a true Christian, we could say, someone who's really, truly walking on the narrow path. What drives them? What motivates you? And there's no common ground between the two. You tell someone in the world why you're, why you're doing raising your family a certain way or why you're spending your money a certain way, and they look at you crooked. Like, who would do that? When my, when my wife, who was then my girlfriend, got saved and she broke up with me, and she told me why, we, we, we had a discussion, why is, it, is this relationship ending? And her, the reason for a relationship ending is because it was not according to God's standards for a relationship. And there I was on the broad path, and I'm looking at her like, no, no, no. P people don't break up for this reason. <laughs> this is not why. This doesn't. This is not how this happens. You know. That's what's wrong. Your brainwashed. And, and it was such a disconnect between where I was standing and where she was now standing that there was no way to reconcile the two terms because it was just that much different. The way that we view problems and difficulties. You ask someone in the world about the problems. Oh, they say, "Well, it's Murphy's law. Murphy's law is just you expect the worst and you'll never be disappointed." Would you ask a Christian? And you ask them, what's your perspective on problems and pain? And they'll say that he's working all things together for good. That this setback and the circumstance that is a trial in my life is actually God's hand in me to bring me somewhere that I'm ultimately destined to be, and, and it's for purposes that he's working in my heart things that I can never do for myself. And someone in the world that looks at that and they say, well, you're out of your mind. Well, that's a great positive outlook, but you need to come back down to earth and get real. You know, because the two, the, two, the two ways are completely different. The way that we cope with and handle problems. You ask the world, how do you cope? Well, I, I go get a drink. <laughs> you know, or I, do, or I, t I take some pills or I, whatever. And you just ask the world, how do you deal with these things? And then you ask a Christian. And you say, well, what, how does God teach us that we're to cope and to handle with the issues and the difficulties of life? And he says, to cast your cares upon me. He says, believe. Believe. 
believe, hope, love hopes all things. And, and, you, and you look at the two, the two different viewpoints from one to the other, and there's no common ground. The two never come together. The way that we view submission and authority, you ask in the world, and, and, and you say, well, what, talk to me about submission. Well, submission is something that we have to do. <laughs> you know, authority is something that we hate. You know, we desire to be autonomous, captains of our own domain. The, the, those that govern our own de destiny. You know, there is no authority. I am my own authority in the world. But then you ask, and you say, Jesus, what are you teaching? And he would say that the key to authority is submission. And that we live in a world that, that, that is governed by the concept of submission and authority. And it's so completely different between the two that it is absolutely impossible to just say, well, I'm going to keep my life the way it is, and I'm going to add Christ to it, and think that somehow that makes me safe. Because what you've done is that you've embraced a Christianity that is void of repentance. And that's a Christianity that the Bible knows nothing about. Because to, to embrace Christ means to forsake everything else. And that requires repentance first. And that's why the first word that's out of Jesus' mouth is the word repent. Everything that exists in the world is seen by God in almost exactly the opposite light than the way the fallen world sees everything that exists. And thus, the call of Jesus to men and women everywhere is to repent. And that is to consider, the call to consider the world's way and where it leads, and then to consider what God says, and then make the decision in your mind to change views. That's what it means to repent. In light of the conclusion that God's ways are right and God's destination is better than the ways that the world chooses and that you've walked on your whole life and where that path ultimately ends up. Now there's no dispute in the Bible that, that part of being born again, a part of being saved, is the call to repentance. The Bible is absolutely uh, clear about that. In Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 37 and 38. And, you know, you're going to have a hard time if you're going to try to follow me through all these references. You can try. Uh, the first few are in Acts, so it'll be easy at first, but I, that's why I gave you that sheet so that you, know, you can listen now and at least get the full weight of it with your ears, and then you'll have those scriptures. You can look them up later um, with your eyes. But when, uh, when the Holy Spirit was first given on the day of Pentecost, um, and Peter preached the first sermon. It was the day that 3,000 people were saved. And after Peter's sermon, they came to him, and it says that they were pierced at the heart due to the words that Peter spoke. And they said to Peter, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what must we do, or shall we do? Um, it says that uh, in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But Peter saying to them very clearly, up front, repent. Just a little while later, in the ministry of Peter and John, um, when they were approached because of the healing of a man um, in a way that they, they, the, the Pharisees didn't approve of, they were arrested by the Pharisees. And when Peter was answering for his actions, um, he, he says in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says to them, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. 
in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, just a little while later, again, Peter and John being hassled by the religious establishment of the day. Uh, Peter speaking to them, he says, uh, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men, the God of our fathers who raised up Jesus, uh, whom you slew and hanged on a tree, him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And as you go through and you read the gospel being preached, you understand that the concept of repentance is of paramount importance in the act or the, the work of salvation. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Athens, which is a completely Gentile city now. And as he preaches to them there, he says to them in verse 30, he says, And the times of this ignorance, the, the ignorance of idolatry he's talking about, God winked at, but now... He commands all men everywhere to repent. And that is to consider the course that you're on versus the course that God prescribes and to change your mind. Now listen. It is possible for someone to believe the gospel and to believe in Jesus Christ and yet not to repent. In Acts chapter 8... The Apostle Peter has gone down to Samaria because of a revival that broke out there under the ministry of Philip. And when Peter arrives there, he finds that the people there had embraced the gospel that they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter lays hands on the believers in Samaria, and the Spirit of God is given to them. And there's a certain man who's there that sees this take place who had been a magician. And he had been a man of great reputation. His name was Simon, or Simon the Sorcerer. And it tells us that there was a certain man named Simon, which before, in the same city, used sorcery, and he bewitched the people of Samaria, <clears throat> giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man, Simon, is the great power of God. And to him they had regard. He had a, a great reputation because that for a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed, that is the, Samar or the, uh, yeah, the, Samar the Samarians, believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Then, watch this, here's our verse, verse 13. It says, then Simon himself believed also. You see that? That's Simon the magician. He believed the words that Philip spoke. Meaning he, he believed in Jesus. And when he was baptized, so he was baptized even. He went to, so far as to, to make a profession. He came forward at the altar call. And then, and then he was even baptized. It says that he continued with Philip. So now he's listening to Bible studies. And he's even getting involved in the ministry. And it says that he wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. So then Peter comes, he lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Ghost, and I want you to look down in verse 19. When Simon sees the Holy Ghost fall upon them, 
through the prayer of Peter, look at Simon, verse 19. It says that he came saying to Peter, Give me also this power. And he offered him money. I'll pay you. That on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, verse 20, Your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Listen. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart... Do you see the word thought there? The thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. In other words, Simon, you are still in your sins. Now that cannot be said of anyone who is truly a Christian. Because the Bible says that when, when, when we've been forgiven by Christ, our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. And what is being revealed about this man Simon here is that though he believed in Jesus, he was able to see that the path that he was on was dark and that the path that Jesus gives is light. And he was able to see that and he was able to agree with it, but he wasn't willing to leave the path that he was on in order to embrace the path that Jesus offered. He wanted the benefits of salvation, but he wanted to bring those things onto the path that he wanted to continue to live on. And that was a path of being a man of reputation and honor and holding power over people. He, he didn't let go of that. He held on to that. And it was an evidence that he hadn't repented. You can believe and yet not to have repented. And the result of that is that you're not saved. You understand? You cannot have salvation without having repentance. Now, here's the amazing thing about Simon. He says, then answered Simon, and he said, Pray ye, you, Peter, pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. Now, think about it for a minute. Peter gave him something to do, and he wasn't willing to do it. Peter said, you repent. And pray that God would forgive you for the thought of your heart. And Simon said, no, you pray for me that none of these things would happen. Hmm. See, he still wasn't willing to repent. And there's so many people, they, they believe. They believe in Jesus, but they won't repent. They want the path that they're on. And they're unwilling to leave it uh, for the sake of what he gives. Um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this. This, then, is the message which we have heard from him. Speaking of Jesus, that Jesus gave us this message. And declare now to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see the contrast? Dark, light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So do you see how it's possible to say that we have fellowship with him, to say that we believe in the light, and we can believe in it in our mind, but yet our actions prove that we're not willing to repent of our sin. 
And the Bible says that God's assessment of our lives then is that we're lying. Because we're saying that we're in the light, but we're showing that we're in darkness. And we are indeed in darkness if we're not willing to walk in the light. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, just one page of, a little bit over from where uh, we were there. John writes again. He says, and hereby we do know that we know him. This is how we know that we really do know him, if we keep his commands. He that says, again, it's coming out of the mouth, I know him, that's a profession, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. We know that we're in him, not by what we say, but by what we do. The opinion of our mind being worked out in the actions of our lives. Chapter 2, verse 15, just a few verses down from that. John says this. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see two ways there? There's the broad way, the way of the world, the things of the world. And then there's the love of God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's a remarkable thing, isn't it, to think that everything in the world can be placed under one of those three categories? Is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lusts of it. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John writes this. And he says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. The word there means to practice sin. There's, I want to say this. I'm going to say it again before the day is over in case you miss it. Listen. There's not one of us that's sinlessly perfect. We will sin until the day we die because we are fallen and we're in this human flesh. Okay? You can be on the narrow path and sin. Not on, you know, we don't sin on purpose. The whole reason that we're on the narrow path is because we know what sin is. And we know what sin does and we know what sin, where sin leads. And when you're on the narrow path, sin provokes a response of repentance and shame. When you're on the broad path, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an allurement, and it's something that we cover and hide. There's a whole difference between the two paths. So when it says that he doesn't commit sin, it means that he doesn't practice sin. For his seed, that is the seed of Christ, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. You try, to, you try as, a, as a believer on the narrow path to live in sin. You can't do it. You have to leave the narrow path to enjoy sin. Because if you're on the narrow path and you sin, you know what it feels like. Right? The conviction, the light, the shame. You realize that you're exposed before God. But in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Now, notice. Listen, I'm going to read that again. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Do you understand that action is the tell and not words? It's him that doeth. And so you can have a belief without repentance, but it's to come short of salvation. Now, I told you earlier, and I'll say it again, that repentance is a decision with the intent to do. In other words, it happens in the mind, right? 
It has nothing to do with the actions. You say, wait a minute, everything you just read to us had to do with actions, and you're saying that repentance is in the mind. So where did the two meet? Because what this does is it pre presents a problem to me. And, and here's the problem, and it's the same problem that you have and that all of us have. And the problem is that I can look at the broad path and the narrow path, and I can agree that the broad path leads to destruction and that I don't want to live in it, and that the, the, the narrow road is the right road. But I don't possess the power or the ability to match my intent with my actions. My intent is that I want to be on the narrow path. But I find that I'm not able to live that kind of life. So how does that happen? Listen, Jesus knew that problem existed. Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but what? Flesh is weak. <laughs> you guys know that verse. <laughs> but the flesh is weak, right? Paul, the apostle, would say it this way in Romans chapter 7. He would say that to will or to want what's right, that's present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I don't find that. Now that's Paul. And he wrote that after he'd been a Christian for a long time. So I, I agree that, that it's good, but I don't find the ability to do it. So what's the answer? Here's the answer. The answer is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of that gospel is that it's not a profession gospel, it's a power gospel. The gospel isn't something that we just say, but in the gospel there is a power that comes from somewhere else to do the things that we've been called to do. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this. It says that to as many as received him, to them gave he power is the word. Only the King James uses power. The rest say something else. <laughs> to be called the sons of God. That He gives us power when we receive Him. In other words, when we repent, and we say, God, the road that I've been living on is the wrong road. And the way that I've been living is the wrong way. And where I'm headed is the wrong place. And God, I see that. But God, I see that there's something altogether different that You give what you call us to, and I agree with that, and Lord, I want to be on that way, and I receive your invitation to leave the broad road and to come onto the narrow road, and I receive all that comes with that, both the repenting of things and the embracing of things that come from you. When we do that, the Bible says that God then gives us the power to live the life that he's calling us into. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, and I love this verse. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God onto this path of salvation for everyone that believes, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. That there's a power in the gospel, and that's why Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel, because he knows that the power is in the gospel. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says that he has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. And that power doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from him. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter, and this might not, not be on your sheet, so you might want to write this one down, but 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 5. 
it's on. Okay, good. <laughs> I did cross my T's and dot my I's today. <clears throat> but Paul writes in that chapter about people that would profess to be saved, but that weren't really saved. And he would say that in the last days, perilous times would come. People would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, you know, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I mean, he, he's pretty detailed in his description there of, of, of this person. But here's what he says about them in verse 5. He says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They have a form of it. In other words, they're imitators of what they see Christians are supposed to be. But inwardly, there's no real power. They're not living the life. They're two different people. They wear the clothes of those on the narrow road. But in their heart, they're still on the broad path that leads to destruction. Quick question. And, and I'm not in any way arguing in any way. I'm just trying to understand that. I remember that probably about four years ago, there was a girl who came here. Yeah. Who I guess was... Some type of drug addiction. Okay. And she she repented, she accepted Jesus as her savior. And then I think like two weeks later she OD died. And I remember Bobby talking about that from the pulpit saying, maybe it wasn't from the pulpit, but saying, listen, she's happy because she accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. I'm just trying to reconcile that with what you're saying. Well, let's come back to it. Okay. okay, we'll come back to it. And, and, and I, your question may be answered along the way, okay? But, okay. but we'll talk about it at, at the end, okay? Hang on to it, okay? Um, okay, so a form of godliness, but denying the power. But the point is that there is power in the gospel itself. Now, what is that power? Here's that power. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Here's, here's what it is. Philippians 2, verse 13. It says this. It says that it is Him, that's God, Christ, that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, the power God gives us is not just the power to change our mind and think differently about life and the way of life, but he gives us power to do the things that he's called us to do. His commandments in the Bible are his enablements. The power cannot come from ourselves comes from him. He's the one that gives us the power to do those things. There are times that I see someone, like you're describing, Jim, that is so messed up, and it doesn't just have to be drugs. It can be any, any sin, because sin destroys. And sometimes I see people that are so messed up that even I can be tempted to think that there's no hope for this person. They're just too far gone. They're, they're, they're not going to come back from the brink. They're not going to come back from, from whatever. Their mind and their psyche and their body is so wrecked by the power of the sin that there's no possible way that that person uh, is ever going to be right or could ever be whole. Listen, the day that I truly believe that to be the case will be the day that I leave the ministry. Because the Bible tells us, and God says to us, that He has power to renew the mind. And He has power to save a life. And He has power to transform us from what we are in our sins to what He makes us and to what He Himself is. And, and the day that we think that that power doesn't exist is the day that we should just stop because all we have is a form. We're believing an ideal and we're clinging to something and hope that it's going to do something for us. But, but it really doesn't have that power. 
And yet God says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he gives us the power to live the life uh, that he's called us uh, to live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9, that's the, um, the text I'll draw your attention to and show you this. Watch this. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul writes and he says, Know ye not, don't you know, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, use your imagination, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, every one of us in this room can see ourselves on that list. Okay? Every single one of us in this room can see ourselves on that list. But notice what he says in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. Do you see that word, were? It's in the past tense. In other words, Paul could look over the congregation of the Corinthians, the people he knew by name and face, and he knew their story, where they came from and where they now were. And he could look at the one who was a homosexual, and he could say, this is what you were, but you no longer are. He could look at the person that was a total drunk, and he could say, this is what you were, but you no longer are. Not just, okay, be positive about the way you think, or not just, you're always going to be that inside of you, but you don't have to act upon it. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is what you were, and this is what you are. And the two things are completely different. They're not one and the same. He could look at the covetous, extortion, greedy person, the businessman who ripped people off and couldn't get enough money. And all he could think about was his things and his position, his power in life. And he could say, that's not who you are anymore. And it's not an identity issue. It's an actuality issue. This is what you are now. You're different. You're changed. Because you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by, listen, the Spirit of our God. If God's Spirit doesn't have the power to transform a life, then it's not worth following it. He has the power to transform a life. But the power comes with repentance. You understand? The power doesn't come when I say, well, God, I'm just going to continue on this path no, you change your mind about the path that you're on. And you come to God for the power to get on the path that you're on. And so the conclusion of the matter is this, concerning Jesus' first public word of preaching, is that men and women everywhere are called to repent. And when there is true repentance on our behalf, there is true power from God to make the change that we've made in our mind real in our life. He makes the change real in our lives when we make the change real in our mind. And I believe that the singular reason why we have full churches in the United States of America today, not every church is, is full, but a lot of churches are full. And there's a lot of people that profess to be Christians. I think it's somewhere around 70% of, of people in the United States claim to be Christians. And though those statistics be what they are, yet why is it that our country is crumbling and pulling apart at the seams? 
Why is it that the families are faltering and marriages are dissolving and people's lives are falling? Here's the reason. is because there's a profession, but that profession comes without repentance. There's been no real repentance. Jesus has been accepted, but everything else has not been forsaken. Why is it that people get saved and they endure for a while, but then they fall away? Oftentimes, I believe, it's because there's not been a repentance within their life. They're disillusioned because they expect certain things to happen within their life, but that those things don't happen within their life because there hasn't been a, a repentance of the way that they've been going on. Or they're not experiencing a reality with Jesus. He's just a concept. He's on the page, but he's not in their heart. Or there's an imitation of Christian principles, but there's no impartation or transformation that takes place in their life. Oftentimes, it's because there's a profession, but there hasn't been re repentance. And without repentance, not only is there no change in the life, but there's no salvation. Um, <clears throat> I, I also believe that part of the reason why um, repentance is not preached and why it's not popular is this is a real hard message to give, isn't it? I mean, it's real easy to come to someone and tell them that they'll have peace and joy and you know all, all kinds of things if they just accept Christ. But it's very difficult to look at someone and tell them that they need to repent. You know, and I, and I think it's probably the most offensive thing that you can say to someone, especially in the modern age where we live today, is to look at someone and tell them they need to repent. I mean, if someone wants to give me instruction about something that I don't know that much about, you know, I'm all for it. If I don't know anything about computers and you want to tell me about computers, you know, I'm all good with that. When someone comes and tells me and tries to teach me about something that I really feel confident in, that I know, then I, I feel like my feathers ruffle a little bit. You know, you know the feeling? Like when you kind of like have really digged into something? Well, think about it for a minute. If someone's living their life and, and they're trying to just stay above water and they're doing the best <clears> they can and they have hopes and dreams and ambitions, they're not being realized, but they're there. And someone comes and says, you're doing it all wrong. You're never going to get where you're trying to go. That's offensive. It hurts. It does something in, in, in a person when they hear, you need to repent. Because what you're doing, it's not working out, is it? How's life working for you? Not working out, is it? <laughs> you know? and that, that's basically what you're doing when you're calling someone to repent. You're telling them that, that, that what you're doing isn't working. And where you're going, you're not going to end up where you want to be. It doesn't work. It's not going to happen. And that hurts. It's a hard message for people to hear. And they get angry. People Sometimes they get really angry. But listen. The truth stands. And when a person hears truth, truth doesn't leave just because they don't like it. The Apostle Paul heard, heard a message preached by Stephen, remember? And he gnashed with his teeth and he consented to his death and he put a man to death for telling him the truth. But a few months or years later, when the Lord Jesus met Paul, the words that Jesus said to Paul were this. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? In other words, you heard truth, and it's never left you, has it? You saw that the way that you're on is the wrong way. And you saw that there's another way. And you can't deny it anymore, can you? Nicodemus, it was the same thing. Jesus basically said to him, you need to repent, because you're a teacher of Israel, but everything that you're teaching and believing is wrong. And that was a hard message for Nicodemus to hear. But we see that the truth stood. And when Jesus died, he was there with the other man, taking the body of Jesus and burying it. And Nicodemus became a believer because the truth stands. 
we were at Vassar College about a year ago and sharing with the students there. And uh, I got into a discussion with a young woman after the message. And during the message, I thought that she was a Christian because of the way that we were kind of connecting during, during the message. I thought, you know, there's someone who's, who this is resonating with. And afterwards, as I was speaking with her, she began to um, reveal that she was not a Christian. <laughs> really not a Christian. <laughs> I said, how are you? Good. She said, I got a question for you. But what? She goes, why is God genocidal? And why does God hate homosexuals? And why does God hate, tell me I can't have sex? And why does God, and she, I mean, she just was ready. She, was, she came loaded for bear. And I said, okay, let's take one at a time. And we sat for two hours. And one by one, she would ask me questions. And I said, well, the Bible says this. And this is what God says about that. And this is why God, God feels that way. It's why God did what he did in that whole thing. Let's go on to the next one. We went through the whole thing. Her whole demeanor turned around during that time. And at the end of that, I said, do you want to receive Christ? I said, no, I don't want to receive Christ. I said, okay, well, if you ever do, this is how you do it. And we went our way. Well, I, I ran into the facilitator of that meeting about I don't know, six to eight months later at a concert. And he said, hey, remember that night you came back and you talked to that girl? I said, yeah. He said, well, she called me about a month ago in the middle of the night. And she said, I don't know what to do. I just can't not believe in Jesus any longer. And she gave life to Christ. See, the truth stands. And so it's a hard message to give to someone to tell them that they need to repent because the way that they're living their life is wrong and they need to change their mind about it. And they might get angry, but they can't deny the truth of the matter. And the Spirit of God is always faithful to come behind that message and to solidify it and bring truth to it in a person when they're in the quiet place. But to give someone the gospel promise without giving them the call to repent is to teach them the completely wrong thing. Broaden your path. No, 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 no. Leave your path. It's a narrow way that leads to life. Um, I think I have it. I took a picture of it because I couldn't get my um, photocopy to work. But I want to just, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, I want to close with this. This was actually in Reader's Digest, which amazingly you can find some things in there. That <laughs> but listen to this. This is real brief. That's uh, a joke, actually. On an icy, bitter, cold day, Hank visited Lou. He said, I had a very rough time getting here, said Hank. For every step forward, I slipped back two. If you slipped back two steps for every one you took forward, how'd you get here, asked Lou. And he said, I almost didn't. But then I said to myself, forget it. So I turned around and started home. <laughs> but I thought, you know, that's repentance. Because you walk through this life... And, and you're trying to get somewhere, and trying to make things work, and for every step you take, it seems like you go two backwards. Jesus says, turn around. <laughs> and you'll get where you're trying to go. So he calls us, he says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Went a little long this morning, my apologies. Uh, I actually thought it would be a little short this morning. That happens. <laughs> um, I want to come back to... Vin, you want to stop the tape? I hate you. I feel weird about it while I'm speaking, but now I do. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I know that... I know... I mean, I can't speak to that level of addiction... And